free speech. It's getting exhausting. It's a game of online publishing whack-a-mole as wingnut Alex Jones of InfoWars fame finally gets suspended from Twitter, only to direct his audience to Tumblr. How should those of us who still love America feel about the amount of crazy that's going on in the publishing game these days? And MoviePass is testing its business model on Solo. Following a page from Darth Vader's Cloud City Book of Negotiating Tactics, movie theater subscription company MoviePass is altering the terms of your deal. Pray they don't alter it further. And skinny bundles are the new skinny jeans. They're everywhere. In further evidence of a trend I like to call the great rebundling, Digital distributors and content companies are hooking up faster than you can say. Ban Alex Jones. The latest swipe right on each other. Verizon doing a deal for free Apple Music for six months. Samsung doing a deal to preload Spotify on all its devices. And last but not least, for the Fort Knox one-on-one this week, I've got Dinesh Paliwal, the CEO of Harman International, the high-end audio company Samsung bought for $8 billion last year. He's talking straight about the future of music formats and the right way to play business hardball with China. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Fort at the NASDAQ market site in New York Times Square. Joining me on the show today to break down the headlines, I've got Ed Lee of the New York Times. Always good to have you, Ed. Dan McComas, CEO of MZ, RIP, and former senior vice president of product at Reddit. And joining me a bit later, Brent Lang, the senior film editor at Variety, and Sherry Hu, columnist at Billboard. All the best people. I only get the best people. Uh, guys, welcome. Um, Ed, so this change with Twitter, uh, it's like Alex Jones is on in-school suspension. Right. He can look at Time, tweets. It's a timeout for It's him. a timeout. Yeah. He can look at tweets, but he can't make <laughs> any or retweet anybody. Are we seeing the emergence of a new kind of policy, or maybe a different kind of policy at Twitter, gradualism? Finally, we've got enough on you to ban you. I think gradualism is a, a good way of putting it. I think the worst of it, however, is it's unclear even to Twitter what their policies are. They're sort of making up as they go. In fairness, these are complicated issues. These aren't things, and we haven't seen these issues before. These platforms, they, they originally said they're more of a utility. Think of the phone company. Other people, like me, say they're a media company. They're probably somewhere in between. And I think, you know, one policy, there isn't a good use case right now for how to best deal with these things. What's clear, though, between Twitter and Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, for that matter, if they don't have a clear stated, set of stated policies that they can adhere to consistently, someone else is going to figure it out for them. That someone else could be Congress, could be the courts. You know, there's no case law around this. There's no real legislation around this. So if they don't figure it out, someone else will. Dan McComas, you are familiar with these kinds of issues, having dealt with the Reddit community, which can be quite rowdy. For, for those who aren't familiar with Alex Jones, perhaps you're not a regular InfoWars uh, viewer. Uh, top ridiculous false assertions from him include that 9-11 was an inside job from the government, that uh, that Pizzagate debacle, which I won't detail here, and that the Sandy Hook massacre was an act. Uh, disgusting stuff. Dan, you think, though, that platforms, including Twitter, just aren't savable, that all these policy changes are, are more Band-Aids. Why do you think that? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think these problems were created when the companies were founded. And I think that this is a problem with Silicon Valley investing and with the founders who start these companies whose only goal is to grow the platforms and to gain a network effect. And it's understandable, having done MZ myself and it not worked out, that is the single biggest challenge of doing a social-based startup, is getting enough people to make it active. 
These companies didn't build in the culture of values into their company, and the platform and the communities that exist on the platforms largely reflect the companies that are built. And these, these cultures have grown so huge and taken on um, you know, such an entrenched culture that I really don't believe that it's possible to go back and change that. You know, this is many, many years in the development. And can you fix some of it? Sure. Can you hide bad stuff? Sure. Can you change a culture of hundreds of millions of people? I'm skeptical. And uh, I also don't see the commitment from all the levels of leaderships from any of the major social platforms to make this happen. It's a very expensive, it's a very um, controversial uh, approach that they all need to take. Is it is an issue of a culture of the network, meaning the people who are on it, versus a culture of the company? I mean, if the company changes its culture in terms of their 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 policies and how they enact them, couldn't that ultimately affect the network that that that's on them? Absol absolutely, right. And and I think what people don't realize is that the two things go hand in hand. I know this from Reddit. I know this from other companies. Is that you know the the communities that you build largely reflect the company that you have built. And uh, you know, as you've seen over the past few days, Twitter employees from various levels of you know, practitioners to leadership are speaking out in favor or against uh, these kind of things. You know, it's clear that the company is not on the same page and you can't expect the people enforcing the policies to even know what to do. Um, and you know, this is a problem that potentially could be fixed now, but this is a problem that started you know, 10 or whatever years ago. Mm. And this is the same problem that exists at all the companies. Now, we just got a, a comment in from Not a White Hat saying they're banning everyone. They need to stop. No one cares. Stop censorship. It's not just him. First of all, no, they're not banning everyone. I'm still on Twitter. Right. Lots of people still, the president's still on Twitter. Lots of uh, they need to, no one cares. Lots of people care. Uh, here's my concern, Dan and Ed. Ed, I'll direct this to you. There's no accounting for taste. Yeah, right? Facebook right. exists, Twitter exists, Reddit exists, on down the line. There right. are lots of people on them. They have momentum. People are still watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. What makes us think that the public, the users, are suddenly going to gain a conscience? And, you know, I think no accounting for taste is exactly right. I think they don't claim to either. We're talking about who's going to make these decisions, whether it's the company or it's Congress or the courts. Right now, what's actually happening, the dynamic that I'm seeing, is that in as much as Twitter and Facebook are saying we're, we're an open platform for all ideas, what's really happening is that they're kowtowing to the extreme right that's also been propped up by a lot of the members of the GOP. They'll put up, like, Diamond and Silk as an example of why you're trying to ban these people. They're, they're, it's a fair, fair free speech issue. They're a great poster child for the GOP for... For, uh, for things like InfoWars or others sort of hide behind. And I think what's the problem right now is that they're setting the agenda, rightly or wrongly. I, I don't know that Twitter or Facebook, et cetera, are really seeing the power dynamics in play in D.C. They're still new to D.C. They're still new to lobbying. And I think they're kind of, they're, they're, they're getting taken to the cleaners on the, on the policy front. Got another comment in from Global Angst. Uh, give people more credit. People are smarter than you think. Okay. Dan McComas, <laughs> you, you at Reddit dealt with the public quite a bit and some of the interesting subreddits that would pop up and the way that the board of Reddit dealt or didn't deal with these issues. Okay, realistically, 
These platforms are going to be around for quite a while. They're multi-billion dollar companies, even on the small end. So how do you begin to tackle this if, if they're not going to change wholesale because they weren't built that way? Look, I think this ultimately comes down to values. And I know it's really kind of alluring to look at Alex Jones and whatever acute example is popping up this week. But you know, really, what, what we're talking about is values. And does anybody really understand the values of Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, you know, Discord, whatever the big platform is? And I don't. Uh, I don't understand their values. I don't believe that they understand their values. If they communicate their values clearly to their users and to the public, they can own the decisions that they're making. But changing week by week based on whatever PR crisis is popping up is never going to change anything. Um, and users can't decide whether they're going to use the platform or not. So uh, you know, the first thing I would like to see done is for the leaders of this company, Jack Dorsey in particular right now, to gain a grasp on what his values are and to communicate those values clearly. Understanding that values can change you know, along with time. But I don't believe that his values are changing because uh, the world's changing. I believe his values may be changing because of the PR crisis that's put on him. Hmm. The, boards, the boards only care about profit and growth. You know, the boards don't go in and ask, how's the health of your community going right now? You know, they don't care. None of them care. Uh, what they care about is, why am I in the news for this PR debacle and what are you going to do about it? How's it affecting user growth? And uh, you know, I just don't think that the dynamics between the incentives for growing the business match up with culture dynamics fundamentally. Wow, yeah, uh, we have certainly seen some of the former heads of growth at Facebook at least start to say some of those things, uh, implying that they created a monster, and then quickly walking it back. Even Jan Kuhn, uh, who, who sold WhatsApp to Facebook for uh, upwards of $19 billion, he was speaking out, but then we just learned he's also collecting that $450 million check on his way out the door. He said, I quit in April. But he's like, yeah, not quite yet. I'm still going to come in enough times to get that check on the way out. Uh, Dan McComas, thanks so much for joining us. Great insight. And I do want to mention, when it comes to communication, Jack Dorsey is going to be on NBC Nightly News tonight with Lester Holt. We'll see what he communicates. Um, joining us now, moving on to talk about MoviePass, Brent Lang is a senior film and media editor at Variety. And MoviePass, frequent viewers of Fort Knox will recall, was on this program just a few weeks ago. Ed Lee yep. was sitting right here, here with me. Right. And we had the CEO of AMC as well. And it was kind of like the battle of the movie theater subscription models. And MoviePass, man, he was saying, absolutely, we are in this for the long haul. Subscription movies, dirt cheap. AMC was saying that's not sustainable. Take a listen. Every month, uh, we get closer and closer to breaking even and with our subscriber base. And, and it is not going to be that much longer uh, until that happens. Yeah, well, that's the movie pass side of it. Uh, but apparently, they only have about, I don't know, three months left worth of cash. So we'll see, we'll see how, many, how many months it takes. Let, let's roll that AMC sound as well for the skeptical take on MoviePass's approach. Any company in any industry needs to charge more for their product than it costs them to deliver the product. 
And by MoviePass's own admission, they lost $40 million in May. They lost $45 million in June. Um, uh, we said on the first day they slashed their price to $10 a month, that we thought that there's nothing wrong with, with a subscription concept, but the price point they picked was not sustainable. The new deal is three films a month, still $9.95. They tried to get the price higher, but then they're like, ah, we can't do that. Brent, what's the impact of MoviePass been thus far, and do you think they're going to make it? Uh, well, I think the impact has been seismic. I mean, if you if you look at what's going on in the exhibition space, you have AMC offering a subscription model, you have Cinemark offering a subscription model. MoviePass has demonstrated that there is a real desire for you know a Spotify-like, uh, Netflix-like approach to ticket buying when it comes to movies. What they haven't demonstrated is that they can make a profit. And I do think that when you listen to someone like Mitch Lowe saying every month we're getting closer to profitability, I mean, if you take a look at, it, at MoviePass's most recent financial statement, that is an absolutely absurd claim. <laughs> I mean, this is a company that is burning through cash at a really dangerous clip. They're, they're burning through about $79 million a month. So I don't understand how he can look at those numbers and say, uh, we're uh, moving towards a sustainable business model. I like you, Brett Lang. It's, it's your first time on Fort Knox, but I hope it's not the last. Ed? No, I'm with Brett. I, just, I, I think, I think the, clearly there's a whipsaw in the pricing. They started at $50 a month and said, you know what, we need a, a bigger pool of people buying into this. They cut it down to 10 unlimited. Now they're, bringing, now they're limiting the amount of, of films you can see. If you're a consumer, you're like, wait, what am I getting for this? So... Conceptually, it's a great idea, and I think clearly, as, as we can see with the chains doing that, as Brent pointed out, they're engaged in this model. We don't know what the price is. We don't know what the real value of the price is. Netflix had some version of that, not quite as, as, as crazy, but um, you know, they went through a whole series of pricing changes, also model changes in terms of DVDs versus streaming, um, and we have to find out what the level is. I think we got to... We're also going to find out what this fire alarm situation at the NASDAQ is all about. Live internet TV, folks. This yeah, is what happens. Absolutely. We do fire drills here, too. Brent, um, does AMC, you think, have the right model? They tested this in Europe. Um, uh, the, the price is a bit higher, but hey, I, I like AMC movie theaters. They have the comfy seats. They have the, the popcorn that we learned from Adam Aaron has like a, a 80% profit margin on it. Oh my goodness, but the butter is free. Um, uh, it, it's comfortable. Is that what we're going to see versus this $10 a month model that seems to have MoviePass bleeding cash? Well, I think if you're a consumer, the AMC model has a lot of appeal right now. Uh, like Ed was saying, MoviePass keeps changing sort of the terms of its use, and AMC seems to be a lot more consistent, at least when you show up at a theater if you're an A-list member you have a pretty good uh, certainty that you're going to be able to buy a ticket, something that MoviePass subscribers have not been uh, assured will actually happen when they show up at, at their local cinema in recent weeks. Uh, I still think it's, it's unclear if this is um, going to lead to a sort of longer-term devaluation of content. And if that's the case, if people start to think in their mind that going to a movie should be some kind of thing where you pay a monthly fee of you know, $19, $10 a month, instead of an a la carte um, 
uh, transaction where you're paying, you know, $19 for each ticket if you if you live in a place like New York, then that actually puts a strain on the economics of the movie business. Because if you're a major studio and you're making the next Avengers film or the next Mission Impossible film, you're depending on a certain amount of revenue coming in. And when you look at a disruptor like Netflix, uh, you know, they have been quite successful, at least in, in the eyes of Wall Street. But they have definitely uh, upended the home entertainment market in a way that's not necessarily profitable to studios. But Brent, in a way, uh, you, you mentioned the Avengers. Isn't Disney, Marvel doing the same thing? I mean, they're getting into the subscription game not for first theatrical release, though I guess eventually there's probably nothing to stop them from doing that. I mean, if, if they discover that they have the big tentpole movies, maybe they get the money up front and then you can go see a bunch of movies if you want. But uh, if, if it's a devaluation of content issue, isn't all of Hollywood stepping into that danger zone? Well, I think that that's an excellent point that you're making here. And you're absolutely right. There is a lot of appeal to going direct to consumer. You create a, a stronger relationship between your brand and, and the customer, and that's, that's a value. You cut out middlemen so you don't have to sort of chop up your profit. Um, but there's also some, some disadvantages. And I think the question is, are companies like Disney and CBS and, and others that are kind of going this direct-to-consumer route, are they doing it because they're really, really excited about streaming service? Or are they doing it because they're really, really scared about what the future holds for them? Is there a difference, Ed, there, I mean, between excited and scared? There's, there's a, a big, I, think there's, I think there's actually a big difference. I think, My whole journalism well. career has been this combination of being excited and, and scared. And scared, right. Yeah. No, that's, that's how we thrive. Um, <laughs> there is sort of a, There has been a longstanding economics to the TV business, to the content business in Hollywood, which is you syndicate your risk. In other words, you have studios on one side and then you have distributors on the other, whether they're, whether they're for movie theaters or their television. In other words, it's like if Disney is going to start coordinating off its content, whether it's the Avengers films or smaller films that you can only see in sort of ultimately a syndication window on their streaming service, they lose out on all the potential money that they would have gotten from an HBO or cable networks um, or other streaming services for that matter. And I think in order to make that work, you'd need to spend a lot more or charge a lot more to the consumer if you're going to make that up. The economics of Netflix are still in doubt. Like they're, 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 they're losing on a cash basis every quarter, even though they're claiming a profit. So if they're at the, at the, at the extreme margin of how that business works, when Disney enters a fray, it's re I'm really curious to see how they, how they make the economics of that work. And I think that's what we're seeing. Going Brent, forward. last word to you. Are you a subscriber to any or either of these two movie theater subscription services? And do you think most of us will be in five years? Uh, I am not currently a subscriber, but the dirty little secret of entertainment journalism is that you get to go to screenings for free. <gasps> no way! You let it out of the bag, Oh, my <laughs> goodness. It's like, you can't, you're not supposed to tell people. <laughs> but you're still paying for popcorn, Brent Lang. Yes, this is true. It was a pleasure. Uh, please come back, Brent Lang. Thanks for having from me. From Variety. And we're going to move on. This is Fort Knox. We are talking about a number of things. We're moving on to talking about the music game. Again, Billboard tech columnist Sherry Hu joins us. And it seems like all of a sudden there are all these mashups. You've got Apple and Verizon. Verizon offering six months of Apple Music. By the way, you don't have to have an iPhone. You can get it on Android as well. And we just had this announcement from Samsung last week when they announced the Galaxy Note 9 and some other stuff. They also announced, well, now Spotify is the default music service across Samsung's platform. 
reach back, we had Pandora's CEO talking about this deal that they've done with AT&T, where Pandora Premium is one of the options that you can get with AT&T Unlimited. It seems like we're bundling all over again. Is, is this what music needs to do to expand the subscriber pool now that we're in the millions on many of these services? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I'm thinking back to a comment that I saw David Bowie make, actually, in the early 2000s. He made a very early prediction that we're going to pay for music the, the way that we pay for utilities. Like, it's going to be part of our phone bill. It's almost like how we pay for even, like, hot water every month. Um, and we're seeing that becoming more and more of a reality with these streaming bundles. And especially thinking about Spotify, for instance, one of their biggest challenges and priorities, I think, is expanding into more international markets, particularly thinking about mm -hmm. Asia, um, Africa, and Latin America. Uh, all of which, uh, in, in all of which, the, the music consumption trend is directly tied to telecom, I think, to telecom providers and to phone usage. Um, and also the, the dominant, uh, interestingly for companies like Spotify, the dominant paradigm there for streaming is free. People aren't paying for music. And so I think there the bundling is especially important. And it starts off as an option. Right. But it seems like no, you eventually gotta pay. You gotta pay. they make works. you get, I mean, full disclosure, CNBC is part of NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast, which is one of the chief offenders when it comes to making people get stuff that they yep. don't necessarily want. Just telling it like it is. They got the bundle, right? But it's not just hey. Comcast. Every 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 pay TV provider has sort of engaged in the system. I guess what I'm curious about is the way you think for music in particular versus say video. It's not uncommon for a household to have a Hulu subscription and a Netflix subscription and maybe HBO as well. With music, you don't need Spotify and Apple Music at the same time, right? They're effectively got the same catalog of stuff. So it is just a battle for market share. Isn't that largely the fight for Spotify? For sure, yeah. yeah. And the fact that Spotify doesn't have the benefit of other revenue streams at the moment, the way that Apple is like selling devices, um, right. or thinking of Amazon as well, a very an increasingly powerful competitor. They have uh, so many revenue streams from Amazon Prime to smart speakers and others. So, but Jerry, isn't this a way around that? Uh, I, if, say, Spotify is popular enough on Samsung's platform, couldn't they start to command some revenue from Samsung so that even if I'm uh, an, an Apple Music subscriber, but I've got some Samsung devices, maybe Spotify is getting a piece of that action anyway, and I end up using them by default because, you know, I've got my Samsung Galaxy, what are they calling the speaker? The Galaxy... Yeah, there's so many speakers. Yeah, so many speakers now. One is. Yeah. It's, a, it's a Galaxy box of some sort. Couldn't they, isn't this a potential answer for them to the zero-sum market share game? Yes, absolutely. And uh, actually, I think it was The Verge that has been breaking all these interesting tests and surveys that Spotify has been giving to users in terms of uh, how likely they're willing to pay for certain types of bundles. And one of them, actually in a survey, Spotify was asking, how, what's your likelihood of paying for music bundled with a mobile-only data plan? So like not even any calls, just unlimited mobile data. Um, so they're already considering that. I don't know if they would do that in-house. That'd be a really interesting move from a business side for them. But yeah, they're definitely looking to get a chunk of telecom revenue as well. Um, uh, Scott. A. Rogers uh, has a question, and Sherry, you're the resident music expert here uh, among the three of us, so you are most likely to have the answer. Interesting. He says, Google Music does not seem to have any market penetration. How can they be doing so poorly with all the Android devices out there? But I guess you've also got to throw YouTube into this mix since it's part of Google, and YouTube does a huge business in music overall. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, a lot of people, especially on the music industry side, even though YouTube isn't focused on music, I think the vast majority of music consumption in terms of views and listens does happen on YouTube. It's, I think it, uh, compared to services like Spotify and Apple Music, it does have more penetration, I think, in these 
markets in Asia and Africa that like the Spotify's of the world are trying to get into. Because so it's free? Yeah, I think, I think that's a huge reason, because it is free. And, and even thinking about the paid versions, like Google Music, YouTube Music, they're not necessarily getting much penetration. But like Amazon and Apple, uh, I'm pretty sure Google Home, with Google Home, you can get a bundle of, with YouTube Music um, as an option. So that's definitely a huge driver for new subscriptions for them. I feel like these devices, these deals that they're working out with the telecom providers, or whether it's with a speaker, they become the Trojan horse to the music service, right? It's like if I get them into this speaker or they're already on Verizon or AT&T, whatever the service might be, if Spotify or YouTube Music or whatever it is bundled into that, like they'll just be hooked to that one. They don't need to go elsewhere. I feel like that seems to be the strategy. Exactly, right? yeah. especially with uh, just thinking about music consumption habits through smart speakers. Some of it is lean in, but I feel like even more of it is lean back. It's like you're uh, thinking with an Amazon Echo, for instance, uh -huh. one of the most popular music commands is tied to mood and activity. Like you hear play music for dinner, play music for cooking. And so right. in, that, in that instance, I feel like the service doesn't necessarily matter as much. It's all about creating a sort of ambiance. So may, maybe the, the competition is more about who can sort of create that best ambiance or deliver the best content. But them. what happens to like corporate warfare when everybody's got a Trojan horse, right? It seems like the speaker is a Trojan Come horse. On, where's the and fight? Where's the, the battle? We want to see what right? this it's looks like. like yeah. Everybody's sending everybody gift horses with warriors inside. <laughs> I mean, does it, I like does it work? I, and this is boiling down actually to a serious question, Ed, in that. Mm -hmm. Are we eventually going to get into a situation where the full nasty bundle yeah. gets re reborn. It's no longer a skinny bundle. It's, Ed, you have to have it's this music service, and by cord. the way, it's going to cost you at least another five bucks a and month. And you've said this. I know you said this before. It just, it's another cord, right? It just comes in a different package of stuff. I mean, we should think about you know, this, the limits in terms of household. If, whatever household is willing to spend ultimately on all its entertainment, if you've got a Netflix, a Hulu, an HBO, Spotify subscription, all of a sudden you're, you're with a broadband, you're running to like near $200, which is just a cable bill that you, were, that you tried to cut in the first place, right? So I think there is a limit to how many services a household is willing to pay for, including MoviePass, including Spotify, whatever it might be. It's just going to come down to a choice. So it will definitely be a battle. Right now, it's, it's a marketing battle for how can I get my thing on first that people can sample to start with, and then eventually, yes, you'll be, you'll be forced to pay. It's going to be a limit. There's going to be four or five, maybe six services that a household is going to pay for, and it's a, it's a fight to see which one, which one of the slots you get as an entertainment service. So, Sherry, last word. I'm going to ask you for a little bit of a prediction here. Not like a hard prediction, but a directional prediction. What's it going to take to win in this music streaming game? Is it going to be more on the best partnerships? Uh, is it going to be the best interface? Is it just going to be that raw heft of an Apple or a Google, the fact that they started out with this huge head start in subscribers that's going to push them over the top? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think user interface will still play a big part of it, given that I think that is Spotify's biggest selling point, and that's because there's so many other services that came before it that have died, I think, because their user interface wasn't as good as theirs when they first came out. But then thinking about this conversation about bundles and how like Spotify and Pandora are investing more and more in podcasts, like they're not just music services anymore, they're full-on audio services, thinking about how Apple is reportedly actually considering a bundle of music uh, original TV and video and news. They just acquired like a news aggregator service, mm. as someone called the Net Netflix for magazines. So it's a right. sort of like a holistic Netflix for all of media offering that Apple is thinking about. And so I think one thing that services will have to start investing more in is uh, a really good user interface that combines all of these media formats in some way. Um, because thinking about how Spotify is investing in podcasts, for instance, mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of great podcasts on Spotify, but 
at least me personally, the brand association that I have with Spotify is still very much focused on music. So like, how do you change the interface? How do you change the recommendations maybe to recommend podcasts alongside music? That's a really interesting space that I think we've only really scratched the surface on. Sherry, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. And speaking of great podcasts on Spotify, Fort Knox podcast is on Spotify. And as part of the podcast this week, I sat down with Dinesh Paliwal. He is the CEO of Harmon International. Yeah, so first of all, I am enjoying running Harmon. <laughs> and first of all, thank you for being with you on this great show. Uh, yeah, it'll be two years in November two when Samsung November, okay. announced the deal and we closed in March 2017. Okay. And Samsung just announced in the past few days some more moves in audio, including this Galaxy Home speaker. Um, and I know Harman's also got speakers. How much are you working with Samsung on the other audio products that they do, even outside of Harman? So first of all, Samsung is a very large company, as you know, uh, $250 billion, and they also invest very heavily in R&D. So they have lots of... Uh, relationships from the past in audio and video and what have you. At the same time, Samsung knows and we know they acquired the world's best audio company in Harman. So whether it's, come, whether it's embedded sound in tablets and in phones, Galaxy, or in televisions, there's a lot of R&D work is going on. How do we bundle it? How do we embed it? How do we define audio-video experience which Samsung should be the number one and they are number one in video. So I think a lot of that happening and some of the relationship they had in the past, I think they are either nurturing them or watching how can we sort of transform those with Harman technology. So you're working on you know, things that we might see in the future with Samsung because this deal relatively recently closed, we haven't seen the fruit of it yet. That is true. That is very true because many of these product lines Samsung has, has development cycle of one to two years. Right. So if we didn't start early on, then I think we had to wait for the next generation. But very clearly, there's a tremendous synergy, and we're seeing the fruits of synergy already in bundling. So AKG headphones are being bundled with Galaxy Worldwide. And we're also seeing embedded going into the television and also developing next generation soundbar for Samsung televisions. So in the car, car is incredible. We have the strong penetration in the car for uh, branded audio and branded audio. So we're seeing a lot of synergy there too. So you've got Harman, Harman Kardon, uh, you mentioned uh, AKG, JBL. Yeah. People might not realize, and, and I could go on and on. I'm sure you name a few more of the brands. So absolutely, have. we like to take great pride in saying Harman is a house of brand. Uh -huh. So my predecessor founder, Dr. Sidney Harman, the namesake, he actually built a company based on amazing brands. Harman Kardon, JBL, great American brand Infinity, mm -hmm. Rabble, Mark Levinson, Lexicon. You may know that we have three Grammy Awards for Harman's Audio Excellence, the only company in the world which has Grammy Awards. So we do the branding architecture based on you may have a preference for certain types of audio and I may have a different preference. And people in Germany, China, Japan, and America have a different preference. Really? So ha Exactly. So you tune the systems differently by region, understanding people's different audio preferences. So region and also who you are. So, so we're base heavy in the U.S., I take it. Base heavy and also depends who you are. Okay. So our children, my children, 
32 year, 30 and 28 year, they love to hear a lot more bass, but then there are people in their 50s and 60s, they love to hear Harman Kardon pure sound or Mark Levinson, which is really uh, splitting the hair, the quality of sound. So it depends on who you are. Party mode, you're JBL. You're listening in the evening, when you're alone, you're listening Harman Kardon, Mark Levinson. Car is the same way. So BMW, they have our brand called Bowers and Wilkins mm -hmm. in the top end, seven series, and then they have a Harman Kardon. And then you take Toyota, Lexus uses Mark Levinson and the Lexus, Toyota uses all JBL. So we have a branding architecture in the car like we have in the home. Nice. So has it surprised you how quickly we moved from CD to iPod to smartphone with audio on board to streaming? I mean, it seemed like for a long time we were on the CD and on the tape deck before that. Maybe it just seemed like a long time to me because that's what I grew up under. But it seems like we've gone through a lot of rapid iterations of how we get audio in the car just in the past few years. We have. At the same time, I see there's a renaissance, there's an emergence. My son is 28-year-old, big music producer, DJ, writing music. That's what he does. He's getting back into LPs. He's saying, listen... I'm born in the wrong era. I need to go back to the pure sound. But you can't so, play those in the car. Well, not in the car, but he's building it. But you're right. Yeah. So what's happening in the car, uh, yes, is the convenience, is the portability, is the ease of access to any radio station from anywhere in the world and listening to any source, which is great. That's convenient. You and I want that convenience. But at what cost? What we have seen, the streaming, digital streaming, compresses the music. Mm -hmm. So from the good high quality 24-bit CD quality or ultra HD 24-bit 192 kilohertz, that gets condensed to uh, or suppressed to 128-bit. So you're really hearing all the highs and lows, you could chop them and you hear. So it's a distortion of sound when you digitize and stream it. Therefore, there is an emergence within Spotify, within Tidal, within other streaming services to differentiate the high quality sound, which is CD quality. So right at the cloud level, we're working with them to improve the sound quality or at the source level at the car. So in the car, we're working actually in uh, post-processing, whatever input comes to lift the sound to the 24-bit CD quality. So okay. that's the work we're doing. So a lot of work in the cloud and at the client level. Now, when you say you're working with them, is that because your technology is in so many of the speakers, basically, where the, where the sound is coming out, that you have the ability to put the software at both ends um, to allow the, the compression and de to work properly? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So we have to, well, first of all, the world is so much collaborative now. We cannot do it all by ourselves. And other players, those who are big in the streaming, cannot do it alone. So a lot of collaboration happening, be it Spotify, Tidal, Pandora, SiriusXM, or car companies. So our goal is to give you and I, as a user, as good a quality of sound we can. It's still affordable and convenience. Mm. So we may be working at the right at the cloud, to lift the sound quality, or we do it at the source where we are consuming the sound. So we're working both, when I say working with, we're working with streaming companies, we're working with car companies. The car company is an easy place for us because we have about 44% market share worldwide in the car audio. And car companies differentiate more and more, not based on how big is the engine, what's the horsepower, what's the brakes like. You and I are not interested. We, we are interested in what is my experience in the car. 
Mm. Does it define you and I, our personality? So sound is very important part. So really working Screens with Screens now too. Absolutely. So it's the whole experience. Yeah. So your digital experience has to carry with you, whether you're in the car, on the home, or in the office. Now, where does that matter the most? Because something to, like when, when I was first out of college, you know, when, when I bought my first car a couple years out of college, my mom gave me her car first, uh, I didn't care about the audio system in that car. I, I, the, the windows were manual. I was looking for the <laughs> cheapest, safe car that I could get that would get me from A to B. I don't know, maybe I was weird. It, at what level, luxury-wise, price point-wise, does it matter most what the audio and digital experience is? Because for a cheap car, maybe it probably matters less than if you're, if you're spending a, a lot more. I think you're right. It did not mean, when I came to this great country in 1981, it was biggest thing for me, if I can get four wheels, it really didn't matter what the sound quality of audio was. Right. It was great for me. But then as you start to experience and drive and you start to consume your podcast, your, uh, your video or audio, you're consuming information, not just music. Right now you spend in New York City or in LA or in um, Taipei, you easily spend a couple, three, four hours a day in car. So you need to have that productivity factor in your mind. So audio is becoming extremely important now. At the same time, we are very mindful. Not everybody can afford to spend $4,000, $5,000 high-quality sound system in the car. So we're trying to democratize maintaining the signature sound of JBL and Harman Kardon, but use the scale, a platform approach, which means some basic platform goes in it, which we can amortize across multiple car companies and car models, rather than defining each car model by itself, what we used to do. So we actually, scale helps, number one. Number two, technology helps. Now we can put a lot of software applications in the cloud from over-the-air technology update. We can bring you feature functionality as you grow your taste or your requirements. So you can start from the very basic, $100 sound system, mm -hmm. and you can grow from 100 to 200 to 300 based on your needs. So we're not sort of forcing every user to have everything. Like, I don't care how many features I get in the car. I care what I like to use. Do I have it? Right. I first met you years ago in Vegas. Uh, I remember that. electronic show. Yes. You're, you were always on the floor there in the Harman booth. <laughs> You know, showing what the latest technology was. There's usually a nice car there in the booth also. So I'm, I'm going to ask you a question about the future because you must be thinking about that. Five years plus from now, what is your assumption on what we're going to be primarily consuming in the car audio-wise? Is it going to be streams? Is it going to be, you know, running off of some device the way it was when we had iPods and people are still downloading podcasts and play them off their phone? Or is it going to be some kind of satellite radio thing? Because I imagine you have to tune those systems for what you think is going to be the highest value use. What's it going to be? So if I can be very direct with you, it's going to be multiple things which we are tuning in today. So Harman is world leader in tuner technology. No matter what car it is, and some of the brand which happen to be in California, I cannot name it because they don't want us to, they rely on Harman Tuner technology. So you have radios and television stations and streaming services coming from all over the world. As an example, a German living in the United States 
may want to have a nostalgia of listening to the his village some podcast he grew up with he wants to have the radio station or news you can have that in anywhere in the world so that's what we do so we tune in everything but your second part of the question is more interesting for me what will i consume or my children my wife in 5 right. years from now i think choices are growing right now to consume high quality sound high quality podcast television news i have to pick places because car was not suitable place neither it was providing me i was not able to enable so i would say in 5 years or even earlier you will be able to consume high quality books podcast news for your preference you know 8 o'clock you drive or 9 o'clock you drive to go to your office or 5 or 6 7 whenever and you know what your preference is so bit of artificial intelligence which is not a rocket science it learns from your own behavior and your consumption it start to feed you those news you like to have a news on hollywood you like to have a news on financials or technology it will feed you the latest headline and you can drill down so is this going to be based in the car system now or is it going to get that intelligence from my phone and connected to the car absolutely this is a great thing mobile and cars are converging yeah. absolutely so which they, is why samsung bought you guys well there's a huge <laughs> synergy there i mean they are their leader but irrespective mobile and cars are some people oversimplify they say car is nothing but a mobile phone on wheels i think it's not accurate statement because a lot more goes in here something goes wrong it's a headache but something goes wrong in the car it's a life and death right so but convergence of technology is happening so yes you're right your phones are enabling they are actually a supercomputer in a simple device of galaxy or iphone you have a lot more compute power than we had 10 years ago so you will stream through your phone or most of the high end cars will have a dual source they will have a built in chipset compute platform which can stream directly with or without which means we want to give uh, not device centric but the experience centric environment to you and i that's what car companies are saying that when you buy a car 50000 It's a lot of money, or hundred thousand. You're buying an experience. You can always have, irrespective of Android phone or iOS phone or BlackBerry. That's what car companies are driven, giving you full flexibility of tuning in from your base radio, base amplifier to any podcast, anywhere, any streaming services, any news broadcast. Okay. Yeah. Good. Uh, I want to talk about you. Um, you, you mentioned uh, a little bit ago that you traveled here to the U.S. in 1981. and what a career you've built um harman wasn't the first company you worked for abb i believe yes um and you've done a number of things in engineering moving into management and doing it at a time when i don't know when i first got to silicon valley almost 20 years ago it was unusual to see indian american ceos there was a ceiling usually at cto and then they'd hand the job to you know even if the cto the the indian innovator was was a founder they'd try to find a white ceo to bring in <laughs> um <laughs> but i remember meeting you years and years ago you've been in management and leading for a long time what was that journey like starting gosh i always get the timing wrong you know more than more than 30 years ago um 35 more than 35 years ago in this country yeah <clears throat> first of all you you it's a very passionate topic for me and by the way uh, i don't know what your audience will react to this i think we still have a long way to go in our country sure we do with the first word but we are falling behind scandinavia we're falling behind many other countries on the social front 
We talk a lot about DNI, diversity and inclusion. Are we really doing enough? It's a very passionate topic for me because this is the country of my choice. I chose this to be my country and it pains me when I see we're not really moving as fast or we should be, we should be leading. Irrespective of that, my own journey, uh, it's been interesting. But before I start my journey in 81, I think it all depends how you're raised, what's my upbringing. Mm. So I was born in a family, literary family, but my father was a freedom movement fighter with Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah. Uh, he spent a lot of time in jail because Brits put him in a jail. They didn't want him to come out and give speeches because he was very compelling, authentic speaker. What does it mean to be a free word, democratic word, the values, the rights of workers, the laborers? How so old were you? When I was, no, was no, no, I was not even born. Okay. This, is, this is 1947, pre-47. Right. But I hear those stories from him or my mother. So what, what I saw what I, when I was growing up and I, influ, I got influenced, my father always said, son, if you don't believe in something and it's against your conscience, speak up. Because if you keep your mouth shut, it's worse than even the one who is doing the terror and the talking wrong things. You need to speak up because he said 90% of the people know what is right, but they don't have courage. If you speak up, you might encourage others to follow you. And then the world will be a better place because when we speak against bad things, against evil, against wrong things, whether it's against color, gender, or what have you. So I think that was my upbringing to have courage, respectful, Asian upbringing, very respectful for wisdom. When I came here to professors, I could not speak uh, their first name. Can you believe that? Oh, yeah. My chairman used to say, why do you call me Dr. Scott? Everybody calls me Bill. I said, because that's my upbringing. I respect you immensely. So speaking of, so I came here. I was pretty fearless, very nervous about getting in front of large seminars to speak on a topic, but fearless about finding new grounds, learning new things, very intellectually curious, and I still am. Did you view this as a place that you wanted to come and stay from the beginning, or was it at first just a place that you were coming to, to get something and maybe move on? Well, uh, that brings me to a whole new topic. This is the country, now this is a broken record, this is a country of dream for everybody, has been for generations. That was my dream, to be in the world's best country where glass ceiling was not known if you were good. Mm. At least that's the knowledge I had where you could achieve whatever you wanted to achieve. You could get any education, you could go to any field and learn about it, free society at large. So that's where I wanted to come. But I, and by the way, that's where I drawn a lot of people from all over the world, the best talent brought in here to build what Harman is today. I have a great global leadership team from Germany, from Korea, from China, from all over the world here in the United States. So when I came to Miami University in Ohio, I actually spent a lot of personal time with professors, with their wives and my host family. They were giving me education. I was telling them what is Asian values are. And of course, uh, I was always curious. I wanted to always take the next step, fearless to raise my hand always. If something, everybody said we would do it, I said, I'll do the next one. So I think one thing lead, led to another. For my engineering degree in the United States, I joined ABB in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, or actually combustion engineering, great American company, which was acquired by ABB. Mm -hmm. And when I got a chance, when someone said, who's gonna raise the hand to go build new business in new country where we had no presence? I was the first one. Without knowing the implication, how hard it would be, as an example, I was living great life in this great country. When someone said, we have nothing in China, would you go to China? 
China was not very uh, favorable country for Indians mm. back in 1980s. I said, I'll go. So 1994, I moved to China with my family, knowing it's going to be tough. But defeat was not acceptable. So I lived there for four years. Seven joint ventures we opened, built the business from zero to $700 million. But most importantly, I learned the steepest learning curve I had in my life was in China. Really? Oh, yes. 94 I, to 98? 94 to 98. I had 15 different nationalities worked under me, so I learned from them. I learned the stubbornness. I learned saying no when they mean yes, saying yes when they mean no, all of those things. It taught me immensely and also taught me the value of listening. And uh, how did you learn to manage in, in, in all that? So I, and I don't mean personally manage, though that's part of it, but I mean manage people. You, you were trained as an engineer, and then we fast-forwarded, and you are um, uh, in China for four years leading all these joint ventures and building up this business. But what was the process of figuring out how, how to lead, how to manage, how to delegate? I think I, I had that understanding I watched in India and I learned in the United States. I was already here for uh, uh, nine years before I went to China. So I knew respecting people and being authentic and holding your integrity with no compromise. If you have that relentlessly and you communicate clearly and authentically, people respect you. People then open up and tell you, I don't understand this, teach me. And if I can also turn to people who work for me, hey, I don't have all the answers. I want to hear from your point of view what is the right thing to do. Then you start to build the team. So once anyone can figure out, you're a master at it, you do it all the time, and you t teach people in your shows, in your podcast, in your t television, team, team, team. So I learned in China and afterward too that I can only be successful if I can build a team of people who are better than me in some aspects. May not be in all aspects. And I respect that and they know it. And, and then they know we rely on each other. Right. So codependence, respecting, mutual respect, team spirit, collaboration, authentic communication. Those were my values. They're not like mission, vision of uh, any, any company. I believe in those. I believe that spending uh, a period of time like that, four years, in a different kind of place and learning to work in the culture, learning to understand other people's ways of doing things makes the lasting imprint on you. During that same period, I was in rural Indiana in school, and that left an imprint on me Absolutely. about Great Midwest values, which, by the way, I have ingrained when I lived in Columbus, Ohio, or in Miami of Ohio. Sorry, yeah. So, so tell me from your perspective, when you hear uh, a lot of people saying nowadays, boy, the way China has grown, particularly over the last 20, 25 years, understand their uh, drive to have a, an economy that's not dependent on everybody else. But boy, they've taken advantage of the global system and gotten to a heft where we've got to, to shift the balance uh, from, from treating them like uh, a little guy who needs to be brought up to treating them like a big economic power now where there needs to be more back and forth. The Trump administration is saying that a lot. What's your reaction to the way we are engaging as a country with China right now? First of all, we need to take a step back and say, <clears throat> what made this great country, U.S., where we are, worse, number one? Hunger. Hunger and respect and hard work. Mm. We were hungry, we worked hard, and we respected our fellows, those who were around us, and we embraced them. 
today I see one of the issues which I'm concerned is the young generation or even a lot of people in our country are the same, do they carry the same hunger, same drive to get to the next level? Some of them are missing it. Maybe it's our fault we have not communicated to them what they should be doing. China, on the contrary, they were hungry, they had nothing. I mean, I've been going to China since 86. They had nothing. They, they were lived on one meal in seven days, 14 meals, out of 14 meals, one meal had a meat. Mm. And they had just cabbage and rice and what have you. Today, if you go to Shanghai, you will say this is better than New York in some sense. So they, were work, they worked very hard. Of course, their, their socialist or communist system or autocratic system helped them. Because people didn't have choice. They had to listen to what government said. I'm not advocating for that. I'm a free world person in the United States and I come from India, another democratic country. Third, what they did, they knew they didn't have a whole lot of innovation. United States has defined innovation. All the biggest, best things in the world, most of them have come from United States. Because we innovation, we are innovator. Yeah. China started copying, whether we like it or not, they did. They also utilize the size of the economy or potential size. Right. Hey, we are the big guys, you better give in to this, our way of doing it. I know from my days in ABB or even Harmon ways, you guys first form a joint venture, you bring your technology, Five years later, you need to give your technology. Unfair, very unfair. So to come to your point of how do we deal with China, first of all, China has a lot of good things. We are now dependent on each other. We need China and China needs United States. Same time, I'm all for free but fair trade. We cannot put boundaries around it. World, the business it has no boundaries. Talk of IBM, Global, Microsoft, Google, Samsung, Harmon, we have, we are boundaryless. World is one business for us. Mm -hmm. So our president, uh, when he talks about fair trade, I'm all supportive of that, but we cannot put trade barriers. Barriers are no good for anybody. So yeah, bringing China to the table to openly discuss, and it may take number of years to get to, is the right thing to do, but it has to be done respectfully. China needs respect like we need respect from them. Well, may maybe they need respect differently than the way we need respect. I mean, we were, we were talking about different cultural values. Yes. I mean, respect, saving face, you know, respecting it. level. I mean, th that's different, right, in China than it is here where we view ourselves as this kind of flat society where the professors ask you to call them by their first name. You're absolutely right. See, this is the cultural aspect which I'm a big fan of. We need to embrace and understand. Like in Japan and in China, you cannot do the public prosecution. You cannot call out the name of the president or the CEOs or the leaders of the society and tell them how bad you are and how this you are. We, can, we get away with it in U.S. because we understand each other. We understand different communication styles here. So we have to be respectful to how society works in China, Japan, India, Germany, for that matter, or South America. Hmm. Um, in the technology world right now, we have a number, perhaps similarly, of superpowers. Samsung, which you're part of, is certainly one of them. Got Apple, Amazon, you know, Google, Alphabet, Facebook, Microsoft has re-emerged as, as definitely a superpower. Is that healthy for innovation? Um, because 15 years ago, it didn't seem like this is where we'd be. People thought post.com bust, boy, there'll never be another boom again. Microsoft is done. Um, Perhaps there are only a couple of powers left. Yeah. 
First of all, absolutely believe that's the way to go. There's a book by Peter DeMandis called Abundance. I'm an absolutely believer that technology solves biggest problems of the world, hmm. including Africa. I'm a firm believer that the, the, the continent biggest full of opportunities and rich in resources and people uh, will someday benefit from technology. So scale matters. The problems we are trying to solve of future, we need scale of Amazons and Microsoft and Googles and Samsung. The kind of R&D we have to invest in uh, artificial intelligence to solve humanity's problem, whether it's say, solving cancer research as IBM Watson was trying to do or trying to solve other human interaction with machine, machine to machine or machine to human, uh, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. An average $10 billion company cannot do that. So scale matters. At the same time, it's an important factor, you do not want to have monopoly. So you want to have the balance of power. So therefore, as you rightly mentioned, you counted half a dozen and there are more. So as long as you have a 10 or 12 large players competing with each other, they're competing, but they're also collaborating. Right. They're frenemies, right? So Microsoft as a great example, by the way, I'm, I'm meeting uh, the CEO in coming weeks. Uh, I'm a big fan of him. What he has done is him who has reinvented Microsoft again because he believes in collaboration. He's collaborating with his biggest enemies, whether it's say, uh, AWS or IBM or Google, what have you, because he said, listen, I will compete with you, but I'll collaborate with you. Samsung is the best example. Samsung, if you may already know that, so they have three large businesses. They're the largest in semiconductor, bigger than uh, Intel. Uh -huh. So they supply to Apple as a biggest supplier to Apple. At the same time, Samsung's mobile division is the biggest buyer of semiconductor from Qualcomm. <laughs> so they have Chinese wall within the company. So I feel very good being part of the philosophy where Harman is brought in. I mean, we are an independent company within Samsung. Samsung we treat as another supplier to Harman, but we are agnostic. We can still work with Samsung's competitor like Intel or Qualcomm or NXP and vice versa. So we need big players with the right societal values that they're trying to solve societal problems and in innovating. Innovation requires scale. Mm. Yeah. What tips would you give? What insight, maybe a core piece of advice to engineers, technical people who increasingly find themselves called on by the leadership of their companies to have big leading ideas, whether it's in security or whether it's an innovation that's not just going to add to a product but really define the product roadmap. Um, maybe they even feel like they could be CEO one day. What would you say they should do to prepare themselves? Well, first of all, don't think I need to be CEO tomorrow. I never thought I will be a CEO. But I always thought every day, every month, every year, I needed to get ahead, get ahead. That was the spirit, which is, comes back to America's spirit. That was America's spirit. And it still is. That's why we are the first world. But I'm afraid we need to do something to keep that spirit going. So my message to young engineers is self-belief. Be fearless in expressing yourself, but have few values which you cannot compromise. I really believe in authenticity and integrity. If you're going to game the system, it's going to get you one day. So, which means you need to be authentic and honest to yourself, your capability. You don't know, you don't know, ask for it. Someone else will have an answer for you, but then someone else will also ask you. So, be authentic, 
communicate and collaborate and have a res mutual respect and believe in team. I will tell you, this is my learning. When I was growing up, a typical alpha male personality, I have all the answers, no one can do better than me. I was that bad. And I learned that quickly. This is self-demise if I don't fix it. So I learned that I need to collaborate. I need to respect people's view. I call it, I call it, I used to hear in mono. Is there a story Not, there? Well, it sounds like there might be a particular incident <laughs> or two that, that taught you. Yeah, there are incidents. There are incidents in ABB. I had Swedes, Finns, Dutch, Americans working for me. And uh, when I saw there were communi communication happening after my meeting was over, they were trying to talk about me uh, <laughs> because they're saying, does he really listen to us? We had a point of view. I don't think he heard it. And first it hit me, really? I, I thought I heard you. I was hearing, but I was not listening. So then I started to pay attention, and I really told myself, I'm going to have more listening than speaking, and I did. Now when I go to universities and, and give speeches and stuff, I always say, I was hearing in mono, now I'm hearing in stereo, which means I'm hearing all point of views, 360 degree, even contrarian views, which hurts you sometimes. People are criticizing you, it's okay. Even that criticism makes you better. So that's another advice to engineers. People will say, you can't do it. You're no good for that. Nobody should tell you you're not good for this. Take that as a personal challenge and say, I'm going to come back and do something which they will say, really? I didn't realize that. <laughs> but day at a time, week at a time, one year at a time, as long as you're improving and not making the same mistakes, keep inching. It doesn't need to be CEO. You could be the CTO. You could be the best innovator. Our country is built up of small businesses, entrepreneurial businesses, large businesses, services businesses. So there are different dimensions people could, could take on. It's not always the last destination CEO, right? Right. My view. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm excited. So I know that you don't just have that energy on the CES show floor when you're trying to sell us on the future of technology. I appreciate you bringing that here to the NASDAQ for this conversation. Love chatting with Dinesh Paliwal. His energy is kind of infectious. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. As a matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of this whole thing. The Dinesh Paliwal conversation is one video, and then the rest of the episode is another. You can also go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. And if that's not enough, follow me, John Fort, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Weigh in on the issues we discussed on Fort Knox. And share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.